3 John, and we're going to be here a little bit longer, a little longer in our journey here because there are some things that I want to unpack, that I want to bring to our attention for the sake of our joy, for the sake of our fellowship, for the sake of our ministry. And so just bear with me as we continue to go through some of these things. Why is it that we assemble? I mean, we've asked this question several times over. Why is it that we assemble? What, what do we do and why do we do it? To what end? To what purpose are we supposed to gather together once a week, the first of the week, as it is the custom of the New Testament church from the beginning? And what is it that the scripture calls for us to do? See, I mean, we could go to Colossians, we could go to the book of Acts and see through the narrative. We could go into all the, the instructions of the apostles and we can see what we're called to do. That's, what we, that's where we find out why we're here. And of course, you know, we have the, the Sunday school answer, for the glory of God. Yes, but what does that mean? What does it mean to reveal the fullness of God? Because that's what it means, the glory. The glory of God is to see all that he is. And how do we see all that he is? Through what he has said, through what he has made, through what he has accomplished, and through the one whom he has sent. That's how we see who God is. So God has revealed himself to his people alone. And in that revelation, he has done so through the Son, and then the apostles and the prophets have written of him, and the apostles' writing are the exclusive places that we see the glory of God. And the apostles' writing include what we have so passionately, culturally called the full counsel of God's word. You know, we've got to have the full counsel. You ever, you know, how many of you have ever heard that? And you've seen it. Well, I preach the full counsel of God's word. No, we don't. We have the things we love, and we have the things we like, and we have the things we ignore. I wouldn't say the things we don't like, because we would never honestly say we don't like those. That would be unchristian of us, right? We have the things we love, the things we like, and the things we ignore. And so we want the apostles' teaching. We want to learn a whole bunch of facts about Jesus. We want to see all the cool revelation of things theologically. But we don't care about how we are to live together in unity. Isn't that the way it is? We do care. But the culture has dictated that more than the scripture. Well, what is a church? Well, a church gets together and they pass the plate and they do the baptism thing and the Lord's Supper thing and the ministry thing and the Sunday school thing and the prayer supper thing and blah, blah, blah. And that's what we do. Praise be to God. Well, can praise be given to God in some of these things? Yes, but is that what the Scripture has taught us? Why are we here? Are we here to appease God? No, Christ has appeased God for us. Christ's death has satisfied the wrath of God for us. Are we here that we may look good in the community? I hope not in one sense, and I hope so in another. I hope we gather in the positive sense that we may look in the eyes of the community as a family, as one people under the banner of Christ and His gospel, but not so that we may be seen by the cultural Christians of our community as godly folks. Because we are in church. 
As a child, and I grew up in this town. As a child, if you weren't a member of a church and you were a business owner, it was hard-pressed for you to succeed. If you weren't actively involved in some type of, quote, ministry, didn't matter which one it was, you had to be in the church somewhere that had good reputation in the context of the community, or you might as well just hang it up. Because the minute the new doctor or the new lawyer or the new tractor salesman or the new, you know, long care guy or the new hardware guy joined first or second or third Baptist, you were through. That's not what the purpose of the church is. Matter of fact, the promises of Scripture say that the tighter we are in our relationship with one another in the gospel purely, the less likely the community at large is going to want to do business with us at all. As a matter of fact, it even teaches us that it is going to be a guarantee that the religious of our culture will come against us. They will begin to hate us. Not because of anything we've said, nor because of anything that we've done, nor because of any knuckleheadedness or tomfoolery that we have produced out of our own lives, but purely because we rest silently and confidently together in the gospel, the true gospel the Lord Jesus. So we have these epistles, fancy word for letter. <laughs> and we have these apostles, fancy word for messenger. So we have these letter writers writing letters to the people of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are to embrace every phrase, every piece of context, every piece of instruction, and when we do that, we are receiving the full counsel of God's Word. And that which is told to the church of the New Testament is sufficient. It's sufficient unto salvation. It's sufficient unto the assurance thereof. It's sufficient unto the instruction concerning the divine power of God and is sufficient for our understanding of that which the prophets spoke. Why are we here today? That we may be instructed in these things. That we may be exhorted and encouraged and admonished and corrected and trained in righteousness. See, we're headed into that, those letters, aren't we? We're headed into Paul's letters to Timothy, a young elder, to teach him what it means for the church to exist, the power by which the church is supposed to stand, and the authority on which, uh, the, the authority that governs the church. And John's letter is no different, it's just a little bit simpler. It's this elder loving a people whom Christ has purchased, even Diotrephes, and he wants their unity to be secure and their love to be true and their gospel witness to be light. And most importantly, he wants them to understand by what authority they stand. He wants them to understand that they are subject to Christ. We are here to learn so that we may live. 
Everything that we learn in Scripture, whether it be theological, that which explains God, or whether it be teaching as to how we live, therefore, is to the praise of His glorious grace. I can love you by the grace of the Lord. If it weren't for the grace of the Lord, I would vanish. I can serve you by the grace of the Lord. Well, why is that working in my life, some of you may be saying. Because you're spending more time worrying and laboring in your heart and your mind and your life on things that are not gospel, rather than investing in the celebration of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, you have nothing to give anyone but complaints. I should have had a mirror in front of me when I said that. Praise and glory is all about thankfulness. We started James Wednesday night. And for those of you who don't come midweek, that's no problem. I beg of you to please pay attention to this letter. Don't get 12 weeks in and go, oh, it's too late. It's never too late. Start. Listen to the teaching of the Apostle James. It's what you need. It's what we need. So find time during the week to listen to those sermons. Because it will really help us. It will help you and you and you and you and me. And in turn, it will help us be the body that God has prepared for us to be. I want to go to 3 John and I want to remind us of a few things And you notice we've already preached the whole thing. So now we're having to come back in here. Remember, you see, it's not that long of a letter. But we have to come back in here and expressly show a few things. And today, I want to show the authority of the apostles over the church. And in turn, that authority still stands. And in turn, because that authority still stands, I want us to see that we are subject to the instruction of the apostles as the doctrine of Christ. In matters of teaching about Christ and the matters of teaching about living together as Christ's body. That's the full counsel of God's word. People don't like that. You know why they don't like that? Because our flesh hates authority. We love to have our idols. Now, this is going to blow some of your minds. Some of your minds. We can make an idol out of a one-sided theology. We can have it all right. We can praise the Lord. We can love the Lord Jesus as we see Him revealed in Scripture. And we can have bitter disdain for being told what to do. Why does Jesus say, if you love me, you'll obey my commands? And what is the context of that? Very clear instruction. To love one another as I have loved you. What? How are we doing, church? If we were to measure ourselves against the love of Christ, the God of the cosmos, putting on a creation, putting himself in subjectivity to creation... Bearing the wrath of God as a substitute for wicked people that hate Him. How are we doing in comparison to love? Poorly. Because at 1230, I'm going to be thinking, what am I going to eat? You see? Is that wicked? No, I'm hungry. I need to eat. 
But our bodies and our lives are going to, even by design, worry about our survival before we worry about someone else's. Now, parents and grandparents, we know the difference, right? We know what it's like to sacrifice. But listen, sacrifice as a parent is not, even though it should be a picture of Christ, it is not because as a father, I sacrifice because it is my duty, but oh, I'm complaining the whole time in my spirit. I'm frustrated. I'm You see what I mean? Let's be honest. At work, we're to serve our bosses and our co-workers as if they are Jesus. Whatever you want, Lord. It is my joy, Lord. I lay my life down. Are you not going to pay me? That's great, Father. See, that sounds good in the spiritual sense. Right here till about noon, that's all well. Tomorrow around noon, what do you mean I can't take lunch? This is my time. You see? But we, we do that. We don't serve as Christ serves. We don't love as Christ loved. That's why Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. It is credited to us before the Father of life. Before the Father of lights. Before the Father of justice. Because we aren't measuring up, beloved. And that's not the intention of the gospel, is that we measure up in and of ourselves. It's that Christ measures up for us, and all that He is is credited to us. And beloved, that's all John's wanting. Verse 5 of of 3 John. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of, of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name of God, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something already to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself before others, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'm going to bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And he's not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, who want to welcome the brothers. And he puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God and whoever does evil is not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. So here we are. Same text, different week, nothing new to see, but attention needs to be brought to something. Attention needs to be brought to the very tightly packed verses 5 through 8. These few verses say a lot. It says a lot because in verses 5 through 8, we are seeing John praise Gaius for what he is doing and then encouraging him him to continue in that manner. What is he doing? He is showing hospitality and love to gospel ministers. Now remember, I had had jokes last week. I don't know why, just funny things came to my mind. So my stand-up bit took about eight minutes of my sermon all together. 
I listened to it yesterday. I'm thinking, man, talking about derailing the sublime. But yet, the Lord is faithful still. And so, when I got to this point, I had to put my brain back on track. Here's something I want, to, I want you to remember today. Showing hospitality, according to the scripture, has nothing to do with just opening up your door for snacks and tea. Enjoying a meal together. It's not about hospitality. Hospitality is, I have things that belong to me. I have time that belongs to me. I have treasures that belong to me. And my brothers and sisters in the faith need them. I give them away. I split them up. And these missionaries, whom I believe John gave the letter to the church to begin with, Diotrephes saw it like, not happening here, get out of here. That's why they came back to John and said, dude, he threw us out of the, out of the church. And as a matter of fact, there were some other people there who said, no, we're going to support these men. And he threw them out of the church. And the elder, other elder brothers are going, well, what are we going to do? He's a powerful guy. And all sorts of foolishness was taking place. But John says it is good that you do this because this is a life or death situation. If you're traveling, for all intents and purposes, in the wilderness from city to city on camelback or it wasn't horses then. Horses can't traverse the desert. Dry and arid places. They have to drink water all the time. Camels don't. You fill the camel up here and then you've got a pit stop a couple hundred miles away, camels fill up again. But here, these missionaries were traveling all around Asia Minor and Palestine. And they were coming into the area where there were churches. And people like Diotrephes, as a leader in the church, had an obligation to give these men food and shelter and clothing and money. Because if he did not do that and they sent them away, they very well could perish on their way to the next location. So hospitality in the context of the New Testament and even the Old Testament, I could go to Genesis and show you what hospitality looks like. I could even go to Sodom and Gomorrah and show you what hospitality looks like and doesn't look like. And that we are to take care of people, especially those who are gospel ministers, because they are not supposed to take anything from the world. Look at that. These men do well. They have testified to your love before the church here with me. And you are faithful in what you've been doing to support them. Even though you don't know them, they are telling of your love. You do well to send them on, your journey, on their journey. Listen to this. In a manner worthy of God. In a manner worthy of God. For they've gone out for the sake of the Lord and are taking nothing from the Gentiles. Now John is writing in a Semitic way. He's not saying non-Jewish people. He's using the term Gentile as unbelievers. He's using that as unbelievers. He says they're taking nothing from the world. They're taking nothing from... Now you might think, well, what in the world? What Christian missionary, what pastor takes something from the world? Do I really have to answer that question? I mean, really? 
You ever met a ministry that constantly about fundraising? You ever met a ministry? You ever seen a minister that's constantly about fundraising who doesn't look like he needs anything? But yet you're serving the Lord. And you're not serving. You see what I'm saying? And some of us, we feel compelled sometimes to give our money to secular organizations that do good, benevolent work. I'll be honest with you. You can do that, but if you're not supporting the gospel ministry, you shouldn't do that until you can support the gospel ministry. Because it's just worthless. And for non-gospel ministry, for people who say, well, you know, we're doing the Lord's work, but they're not, they don't have the gospel, you shouldn't give them even the time of day. But for those who are truly teaching and truly serving and truly going out, it is our responsibility, it is the body's responsibility to support them and to provide for them so that they are not tempted to go into the world. Therefore, verse 8, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers of the truth. Why do we assemble? Here's one of the reasons. There's some things that we do, we understand. We're to do the Lord's table, we're to observe baptism, we're to pray together, sing together, hear the word of God, and then encourage one another as we have opportunity. That when we break up those relationships and those bonds from those promises carry out throughout the week, throughout the life of the church. But here, what are we really supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be glorifying the Lord as we learn and grow by living in a manner worthy of the calling together, taking care of. So let's take this a step further. And this is not necessarily John's point, but we've already seen it in his first letter, haven't we? We have an obligation to one another above all other obligations. Above all other obligations. We have an obligation to one another above the obligations of our community at large. Above the obligations to our physical blood family. Above the obligations to our government, to our jobs. To national politics, to world issues, to social issues. That is our calling. God doesn't call people to be the national stage of political reform for Jesus. You know what? Political reform for Jesus when he burns it to the ground. Stop. You're wasting your life. We waste our lives. You want to see the image of what it means to go and take all that God has given us, the Father has given us, and throw it away and end up wanting to eat hog slop? Luke 15. That's what most people do in the name of Christ. They end up throwing it all away by going and trying to become everything but that which God has said, this is what I want from you. We don't need... Big ministries. We don't need famous teachers. We don't need great outreach. We don't need, we need intimacy and concern and prayer. And this is the same type of thing. This is, this is what happens. And by the Lord's mercy, we don't have diatrophies in the midst of our assembly trying to strong arm his own way. But beloved, if we are honest, there is a diatrophies waiting to bloom in all of us. Is there not? 
What's the moniker? Is he a brother? Yes. Interesting thing is that John never, ever, ever threatens that Diotrephes would be ejected from the church. John just says, when I come down there, I'm going to call him out. <laughs> We're going to get in the assembly, and I'm going to say, hey, brothers and sisters, all you all following Diotrephes, you know what I'm talking about, boy. You, to you tore the letter up. <laughs> Shame on you. And the apostle had the authority to go into the assembly as an elder of elders and do it. Diotrephes had started his Romanism way too early. <laughs> well, I'm the overseer of the overseers around here, and I'm going to tell everybody what to do. Beloved, there is no head overseer. There's no chief elder. Except in the context of role and responsibility, like Timothy, a chief elder in Ephesus... Like Titus, I left you there that you may appoint elders in every congregation, in every city, so that congregation can be born. And then get out of the way. You don't have authority over them anymore. And so this idea about church autonomy is indeed biblical, but church individuality is not. That's why, as I've said a thousand times, if I've said it once, the plurality of elders is the only safe way that a church can remain. Because when the elders fail, there is no remedy for the church to continue. None whatsoever in the Bible. We've got to call a new pastor. You can't do that biblically. The worst thing you could ever do is call a James Tippins from one state to another and say, yeah, come down here and be our pastor. I don't know you from Adam's house cat. You see? But that's what we're taught. That's in the back of our mind. No big deal. Be terrible. Oh, Lord. We're just like, no, it's just disperse. But John's joy came from knowing that these redeemed people walked intimately and loved one another. And not just one another, but they were loving other brothers and sisters in the faith. They were loving those who were taking the gospel out to the world. Now I'm going to tell you, my final message in this text is going to be complete application. And I have been working for years on this application. Years. I'm not exaggerating. Because I want to make sure that I'm not dogmatically strong-arming, but that I'm passionately and intimately and humbly gaining, uh, uh, executing wisdom that God's given me. And it's a very delicate thing. So here, we see these things. We see this instruction. We see what God has called the church to do. We see what John is telling these people to do. But there is this Diotrephes who does not want to do it. Instead, he wants his own way. He wants to put himself first. He likes to put himself first. He loves to put himself first. Now, the irony behind this is that I believe if we were able to sit down and really peel back the layers of his thinking, he has come to conclude that by putting this type of restriction on the body and by strong-arming the church at large for fear of ostracization and expulsion to do his bidding, I don't think he was sitting up at night maniacally going, you know, I'm destroying the church. No, I think he was thinking, I am going to serve you, Lord. I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm honoring Christ my King. 
I'm not going to allow this to do this to my church. Who does John think he is? Well, see, that's the cool thing is the apostles are always obeyed. No matter what's happening, no matter how bad or weak or ridiculous somebody else may be in their understanding or their application, when the scripture is opened up and if a cat is sitting up here and meowing out the instruction of the word, we as God's people are subject to hear it and to do it. We are subject to it. So there is a fail-safe. In the service of eldership, of oversight, of pastoring, of shepherding, of teaching, of instruction, there's a failsafe in that the apostles have authority over the pastors. And they're dead, but the Spirit of God, the living Word of God, as it is written, still holds that power. You see that? It's interesting to see what forms diatrophies can take in the local church. And if I say this in a real sensible way, I'm not saying this in a, in a supernatural way, but I'm just talking about the flesh and the spirit of diatrophies. We are all prone to want our way. And we are all prone to logically argue that what we are doing and how we are responding and what we are trying to accomplish is the will of the Lord. By, and then the whole time sometimes we're ignoring the clear instruction and the commands given to us in the scripture because we know that what we know is better and better and truer than what someone else knows and we're not going to submit to the word of God alone, period, until we get our way. You ever been there? Oh yeah, I have. Remember the joke I made last week? We had the list of complaints. We had all the complaints. If we had the, if David had been an apostle, you know? And I love the Psalms. But beloved, David whined and cried a lot. I mean, he was a heart, he was a musician, you know? We're melancholy by nature. That's the point. That's why we're musicians. We, we, we wear our emotions on our sleeves. We, we walk on a waterbed. You know, there's not a whole lot of firmness underneath a melancholy temperament. But, beloved, I'm going to tell you, if David had been an apostle, the New Testament would have been hundreds and hundreds of letters. And they would have been sob story after sob story. Woe is me. Why is this happening to me? You know, you don't see that in the resolve of Paul, do you? You don't see that in the resolve of, of, of Peter. You don't see that in the apostle because God is sovereign in all of these things. So David, David is a type. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a king, except that he's a shadow of the true prophet, priest, and king. He pointed to him in his psalms. But even then, he was a man after God's own heart. Intimacy and hospitality and love and affection and support. Beloved, that's why we're here. We're here to lay the foundations of living life together as a family. That spring from who Christ is and what he accomplished on our behalf. For us. We are the beneficiaries of all the riches of grace. We've been given... Life. We have been established in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father today. 
That is the work of our Savior. And the simple answer to all of our anxiety is to look at the apostles' teaching, is to rest in the one to whom they point, and is to listen and to follow the simple prescriptions of how we ought to live life together. I mean, let's put it to a test this morning. Diotrephes loves to put himself first, but yet today, how many thoughts have we had about ourselves concerning ourselves, planning for ourselves just to get here this morning? It's, it's a pandemic, and nothing's going to stop it. What keeps it in check is that we learn together here this morning. What keeps it in check is that we are reminded of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. We remember what God has done. We remember what Paul says concerning Christ in Philippians. To the Philippians. Right? Though he was God, he became nothing. Though he was omnipotent, he lowered himself and became an infant. And because of this, God raised him up that at the name of Jesus, every living creature that ever has or will live will call him Lord. Because that's who he is. So we are to be about the business of Christ. And it is a two-edged sword. The word of God is a two-edged sword. I mean, think about that, Hebrews 4. Think about that for a second. The word of God is living and breathing and active and working. Sharper, see this is the metaphor, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now I know a bunch of us nerds got cheap swords. But I've held a $15,000 katana. And I wanted it until I saw the price tag. Oh, yeah, what is this, 200 bucks? <laughs> I'm going to get this. I'm going to get two. You can't dull it. You can't break it. It's only one edge. So in this picture, I mean, whoosh, just like butter. Everything's like butter. I'm like, can I go cut something? Sure, they let you cut with a sword like that that costs that much money because you can't hurt it. Test it out. Robin sent me a video about some Japanese cooking knives the other day. Like a four-year wait to get one. Like, I don't even cook, but I want one. I mean, that's just amazing. Men love sharp things. And they cut and they do what needs to be done. Listen to that. I'm not talking about a cheap sword. The Word of God is like a double-edged sword is sharper, is active and living and breathing and working. God Himself is working through the Scripture, teaching and growing and expanding our understanding and, and developing our maturity and processing our intimacy. And it is the Word of God that is active and cutting like a two-edged sword. 
And in one side of that, it cuts doctrinally. It teaches about who Christ is. It teaches us the implications of what God has done in the gospel. And we grow in our worship, and we love Him, and we praise Him. And it goes, Hallelujah! I know that my God is a gracious God. And it also causes fear, doesn't it? Trepidation to know what could have been. When we see what God has done, and we see the alternative, we know where we could be. We could be lost and dead and blind in our sins. And that's one side of the sword of the Word of God. The other side is in the context of the very Scripture that it's written. In Hebrews chapter 4, we have a responsibility to hold fast in the person of Christ, and then we have a responsibility to hold fast together. Let's look at chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We don't neglect one another by neglecting to assemble. And this is a tall order. How do we, how do we as we like to say in America, how do we balance these things? We don't balance these things. They're never going to be balanced. We should always be high in our praise and thankfulness to the Lord for what He's done. And that is the power of God and is the love of God for His people that compels us to be concerned with one another. Because if Christ did that for me, what can I do for you? And that's counterintuitive. Beloved, there is no molecule inside the sinful human person that sacrificially understands or understands and comprehends the sacrificial nature of true love, divine love. We grasp it. We see it. We behold it. We look at it. We just wonder. We just said, all. Because Diotrephes wanted to put himself first, thinking he was putting the church first, thinking he was putting the glory of God first. And, beloved, that's why John's not after him. To kick him out. He wants him to be reconciled. Which is the introduction of my sermon last week. Reconcile. Reconcile the gospel with intimacy. Now the awesome thing is that I'm not even here yet. But this coming week and the week after. We're going to get into part of James chapter 1. Where it starts to talk about wisdom. Because this requires wisdom. It requires deep thinking and prayer and counsel and seeking the the Spirit of God to show us how and what we are to be doing. How we are to understand and apply the things taught to us in the Bible. And it takes wisdom. It's not human intellect. It's not historical theologians who have figured it out before us. It's not a checklist. It is wisdom. And so the wisdom of the Lord comes from the writing of the apostles to the church and now to us, the church of today, so that when we see what the Bible says, therefore do these things, therefore put away these things, therefore treat one another this way, this is the recipe for joy, for intimacy, and for wisdom. But sometimes we want our own way. Well, no, until this is fixed, I will rebel against God Almighty. Now, who has ever said that? Raise your hand if you've ever said that, that way. No, 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 no. We ignore it. Remember? 
things we love, things we like, things we ignore. We ignore it. Well, I'm praying for the Lord to do this in my life. Well, the Bible says for you to be in assembly. The Bible says for you to consider others better than yourselves. The Bible says for you to pray and supplicate for your brothers and sisters. The Bible says to love as Christ has loved. And the instruction on what that looks like has been given to us throughout all the New Testament letters. All of them. So to say, well, until this is going my way, I'm not paying attention to this. That's telling God no. That's spitting a loogie in the face of Christ. Wisdom. This is what the Word of God promises. This is what the power of God produces. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to keep praying for God to abracadabra it. Well, God is not a magician. He's not a wizard. He's God. He's all-powerful and all-wise. And he has said, this is the way. I mean, how many times did Peter and the disciples say, that's a bad way, Jesus. Why are we going there? What are we doing here? And then the confident, awesome follower that, uh, you know, that we see in John 20, we see Thomas. What do we see him in the Gospels? Well, you know what? All you little sissies, I'm going to go die with Jesus. Let's go. See, he had his own way. We're always trying to converse with God in a way that tries to convince Him to listen to us. And that happens in our mind, doesn't it? It happens in our actions. And it wrecks marriages, it wrecks friendships, it wrecks congregations, it wrecks communities, it wrecks politics, it wrecks everything. Every, everything. Those, as the brother told me this week, those who do not know the Lord do not know themselves. And that is so true. We create the view that we think we are and the view that we think we want and the view that we think others need to see and then we just act in that way. But the Bible, in the tender, listen to this, beloved, in the tender, loving, merciful way of the Lord, He calmly and patiently nudges us in the right direction. Now think about it for a second. Is that how you see your relationship with the Word? Does the, does the Father of life, does the Father of grace, does the Father of righteousness, does He nudge you and urge you and discipline you and comfort you into the right direction, into right understanding, into right affection? Or are we scared to death? When's the first time you read the book of Hebrews? Or the book of 1 John? Or the book of James. And it's usually, you know, it's usually later in our Christian life when we get to those, right? When we start to see them. And then we go to bed that night and we go, I'm going to hell. <laughs> I'm lost. Because we've been taught by the culture that these instructions are how life is assured. Or worse, like some say, how life is obtained. And then to be... Spiritual and all subject to the sovereignty of God, we say, we see the Lord's doing it. Now, the Lord did it already. We get the benefits. 
But when we read them in the context of God's mercy, of his love, that he only has for his elect, we know that these are, that that love of God, that the work of Christ is the motivating influence. What does Paul say? The love of Christ compels me. I love you with all the affection of Christ. Now there is man's glory. There is earthly glory. There is, you know, esteem and wealth and stuff that John says in his first letter to not love. Do not love the world or the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the pride of possessions, for the things of the world are passing away and are not from God. And there are some ministers who think they're gospel ministers, and there are some Christians who think they're truly in Christ, and they do everything that they can do in the right way from the outside looking in, because they're acting like ants, but they're building nothing. You ever been outside and seen a trail of ants? They're not on a journey. They're not on vacation. They're not taking a trip. They're not just having a walk. They're building something. And you can't tell unless you get one that decides to carry something 400 times its size. They're moving back and two. They're bringing food. They're building whatever they call it, beds or nests or whatever. They're developing community. And we can be busy like that. We can be running here or there and moving stuff and feeding things and doing but not understanding the intimacy that's truly behind it all, which is Christ. The first time I ever said this phrase, and most of you have heard it before, was in 2007. And I said... You may want to hear my preaching, but you don't want my pastoring. And that's where a majority of the world is. That's where a majority of believers are. They enjoy the doctrine. They enjoy the teaching. They enjoy the opportunity to hear again the gospel of what Christ has done. But they have no interest in the accountability of intimacy. And even those who do sometimes, when that accountability rubs up against their idols or their own way, it starts to rub. It's like having two big shoes with no socks on a wet day. You're going to limp home that afternoon. You're going to be in bad shape. Beloved, I love you, and that is why I do what I do. And I want you to learn to grow to love one another. That is why we assemble here. To the praise of His glory. What else are you getting from this? What else are you looking for? What else are you hoping to obtain in the context of the assembly of the saints? What doctrine are you not confident enough in that you need reinforcement? What theology do we need to cover so that you can be at peace? I'll tell you. Wherever we are in the Word, that is what you need. And the reason that it is being given to you is to grant you great confidence 
so that you and I may live together in intimacy. That intimacy is the utmost importance to John. That intimacy was the utmost importance at the church of Corinth. That intimacy was the primary issue to the Ephesians. And the things that upset that intimacy were the things that upset the body of Christ. And when the sword of the word cuts us, I said this last week, but I don't think we heard it. We should, even though we, you, we use the word conviction, that means an inner understanding that we're not doing that which we should, as James would say, he who knows to do right and does not is sin. And then when we see that we are doing things that we shouldn't. But ultimately, the teaching of the Scripture is more than just correcting behavior. It's to reveal the behavior of God. To reveal the behavior of God the Son and His ultimate love. And to follow Christ and follow the apostles as they follow Christ and to follow each other as we follow Christ. And beloved, there is no area of our lives, there's no sphere of our lives that escapes that. It's not just about the ministry or the church or the assembly. It's about life. It's about the world at large in which we live, which we are not of. We have been snatched out of the world by mercy, by power, by grace, by love. So we're together in every aspect of our lives. Every aspect of our lives. We're not subject like little police officers, but we are subject in the context of the teaching of Scripture that we are to understand that when we need each other it is most of the time at the hardest times in our lives and in that moment we will not want each other we will want to hide we will want to escape we will want to bury ourselves or blame ourselves we are not supposed to come to the throne of grace fearful or rejected that's the whole reason we can come we are not rejected by our father how can the righteous God of glory not reject me when I know what I am and I know what I've been doing? And I know what I've been thinking and I know what I've been feeling. Because all of those things, wicked as they are, have been placed on Christ who was crucified for them. So if God in all righteousness can intimately hold us in tight affection at the cost of His Son, can we not also learn through that example, through that proclamation, to love each other in the same way? And I'm going to tell you, beloved, we've got to teach our children this. We have to teach our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors and our family. We need to teach each other this. We need to be reminded at the darkest place of our lives, even when there needs to be some just pragmatism, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, first you need to understand that this is in the hand of God's sovereignty, you see? First you need to know that this has not surprised the Lord, that He has purposed it before the foundations of time. He decreed that this would be your gift from Him to suffer, to experience, to know, to understand, to apprehend, so that you with all the other saints may understand the love of God. The breadth and the depth and the height and the, of the love of God. Ephesians 3, by the way. I don't make words up. I just throw them out. 
And then you need to know that because of who Christ is and because of who you are in Him, this is to be satisfaction to your soul above and beyond that which the circumstances dictate or provide because God is in charge. So above all things, the greatest thing that we can do together is to know the gospel, to learn it, to grow in it, and to grow in grace continually in the, no- the knowledge of who Christ is. That's why it's always so preciously fresh, even though it's the same thing every week. The gospel has not changed since the foundation of the world, yet it is as if we have seen an epiphany every time we hear it. The gospel is not boring. The gospel is not dull. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so when we are intimate, we are learning to imitate that which Christ has revealed. To what end? To the glory of God. To what end? To our joy. You realize that our joy together in Christ is glorifying. It's a sacrifice of praise. See, that that phrase has been damaged, hasn't it? There's a lot of phrases that have been damaged. I've got a damaged dictionary list. (laughs) Damaged words. A sacrifice of praise. Let's redeem it. In Romans 12, you know. Be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We think about those things. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, I put my mind on that which is eternal, not temporal. So though I've been beaten, shipwrecked, nearly snake bit, whipped, left for dead, imprisoned, disowned, dishonored, nearly dismembered, praise God. Job, praise God. And see, we all give too much credit to these people. We give too much credit to Job. We give too much credit to Paul. Because we forget the dialogue. We forget the narrative. We forget the instruction. And all of these people in the scripture, none of them have taken the credit because if it were up to them, they would have vanished. And my deepest desire for you as your brother and as A pastor is for you to have the joy that comes only in Christ. So that's what we've been instructing you for. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate God, good. And I believe that imitation comes first and foremost in the mind. Knowing who we are in Christ and putting that first and foremost in every aspect of our day will cause us to learn by the Spirit how we ought to relate to one another. Because the gospel is indeed good news. It is good news. We see what Peter talks about In chapter 2 of his first letter, listen to these words as we close. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and put away all envy and all slander. Why? Because we're not joyful when we're doing these things. 
Diotrephes was a miserable man, thinking he was serving the Lord. If you're serving the Lord in your actions and desires, but the joy of Christ is not yours, you're probably not serving Him. And if what we do and what we say and how we interact in the name of ministry, we can't teach and command others to do likewise, we shouldn't be doing it. If it is not commanded of all of us, it should not be done by any of us. I'm going to say that again. If it is not commanded for all of us, it should not be done by any of us. Like newborn infants, infants, Peter says, long, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Not gain your salvation. You're growing in your salvation. You are maturing in your salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When we're enjoying a nice meal, when we put food in our mouth that just... And guys, I close my eyes when I eat some foods. I don't even want to be... I don't want to be distracted from what I'm tasting. I don't frown. I don't spit it out. I don't scrape my tongue with a butter knife. Yeah. I savor it. The gospel is that which God has given us and helped us to see, and we savor it, and then when we are intimate in the right manner, we savor it together, and then we begin to savor one another's company and lives and intimacy. But not if we are diatrophies. Not if we are not trusting in the sovereignty of God. Long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you taste it, to see that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, Jesus Christ, a living stone that was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ For the scripture stands by saying, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, Peter says, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Beloved, let me tell you something. It says they stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to. To do, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there we are, beloved. That is our our role. That is our calling. That is our hope. That is our purpose. That is the, 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 the bread of our intimacy. Are we doing that? No. Are we striving? Yes. Are we ever going to be perfect in it? Absolutely not. For if we were, then Christ needed not to die. But we are not going to be perfect. 
but we are going to be perfected in the love of God, and therefore we also can be intimate in Christ together. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that we need to hear. Thank you, Lord, for not putting on the shoulders of the elder brothers the perfection of your people, the growth of your people, the understanding of your people. But, Father, you've put on our shoulders the teaching to your people so that you may do what you are going to do. The promise that you've given us, Father, that your word will not go empty. It will not come back to you as an echo, having not hit the ear. But, Father, if it does not do what we think it should, it is because that is what you have desired. So it will bring life when you desire it. It will bring hope and joy when you desire it. And it will bring maturity and intimacy when you desire it. And, Father, we need to wait upon you as we encourage one another. And Father, as we remember the death of Jesus and the body and the blood of Jesus in this very moment, Lord, help us to pray in our hearts and minds and spirit that you would help us to become closer. Not necessarily in life and fun things, but Father, most assuredly, help us to become closer in concern and care around the gospel. Help us to be mindful Cause us to pray for one another. Lord, cause us to worship and thank you for things that are seemingly impossible to bear. And we thank you for this privilege and for this honor and for this opportunity to give you thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.